Hallo und willkommen zur schottischen Fußballshow. Wir fahren nach Deutschland. Yes, folks, we are going to Germany. Get those planes, trains, automobiles, bikes, hovercrafts booked because we are on an exodus for next summer. Spain may have broken our hearts on Thursday. Well, VAR did, but more on that later. But it was Spain's 1-0 win over Norway that finally sealed the deal for us. The result means Norway can no longer finish in the top two of Group A, which wraps up the group with two games to spare. First time we've ever done that in our history. Joining us tonight, and I want to say a proper German cheers, pushed to them both, the Tartan Army's most loyal of foot soldiers, Laura Brannan. Hello, Laura. Hello. And cheers. And cheers, brushed. <laughs> uh, and a very special guest making his Scottish football show debut. It is Andy Lang, aka Alba Matter. Prost, Andy, how are you? Hello, folks. How we doing? How we doing? All the beers tonight. All the beer. All the beer. I don't even know what Germans say. Wunderbier. I I think we'll just we'll just get straight into it here. Um, there's obviously going to be one one big general discussion point, which is Scotland qualifying for for Euro 2024. And probably one portal of conversation within that that will dominate chat more than anything else. But um, the main thing is, we're there, we've qualified. Um, Perhaps, Laura, not in the way we would have wanted to. Do you want to just take us through what's happened over the last couple of days? Oh, right, yeah. Um, Take us back to Thursday for anyone who's been on the moon this last week. Um, We had the chance to obviously qualify. Can we just say, can I I just say, can you take us back to even just slightly before Thursday? Because it wasn't really plain sailing, in inverting commas, for you even getting to Spain, was it? Oh my God. So yeah, I had a flight booked from Luton Airport and I don't know if anyone else who's been on any other planet recently, but Luton Airport car park was on fire for quite a long time. So I came home from work all excited on, what was it, the Tuesday night thinking, um, great, get to go pack my bags now, I'm off my holidays. Um, Then we saw on Twitter there was a fire. I thought, ah, it's it's just a car park. It'll be fine. It'll be out in an hour or so. Woke up on Wednesday morning and we saw the airport was shut until three o'clock. Panic stations. I don't know if you've ever seen the show Race Across the World on BBC, (laughs) but this is what it looked like in my flat on Wednesday morning. They had the laptops open, Skyscanner open, checking trains across Europe, hiring cars across Europe, anything that would get us anywhere into France, into Spain for a reasonable amount of money. Um, it, long and short of it was, we had to bite the bullet, get a flight from Gatwick. So we managed to get there. The things you do for the team that you love, by the way, um, <laughs> which makes it even more heartbreaking what happened afterwards, because, yep, obviously we had the chance to qualify with the game in Spain. So Scott McTominay scored an absolute wonder goal. The Braveheart that is the goal machine of this tournament scored from, oh, it essentially was the corner flag, <laughs> long and short of it, in a free kick position. Um, yeah, and obviously VAR ruled it. Offside, foul, um, impeding the opposition. I mean, take your pick. UEFA have just, you know, Who done knows? it any mini mani more here and said, well, um, somebody's paying us a bit more than Scotland. So, yeah, we'll just say, no thanks. Allegedly, that, that allegedly. Happening. I think we have to insert that here before the conspiracy theorists jump on. Well, that's, surely <laughs> that's common knowledge by now. Twitter's taking certain in this. Twitter says, it's so obviously we, true. We will come back to the VAR uh, chat probably more extensively in, in just a little while. But yes, we lost the game <laughs> and it came down to tonight. And that's what it, obviously we're recording this on Sunday night and it came down to Spain versus Norway. Norway had to win to keep their qualifications hopes alive. Um, I think I was maybe one of the, the minority here um, that I kind of wanted to kind of keep it going into November because more so because, well, I don't want to dwell on the negative side of things. I wanted to obviously keep it alive to win the group, which we realistically can't do now. Um, and I just, as an old romantic at heart, I wanted to do it with the players on the pitch. So we got those historic shots of them celebrating, fans are all together, be it in pubs or in the stadium itself. Um, so yeah, I'm a, I'm a wee bit more of a romantic there that wanted to kind of maybe push it on into November. But we did it, we got it over the line and that is by and large like the most important thing. I think I said a little bit earlier on, it's the first time we've ever qualified with two games to spare for any major tournament. 
So there's maybe a question here, Andy, are, are Georgia and Norway kind of dead rubbers at this point or is there still a lot to play for for us? Um, well, I think we've got such quality now in our squad, Finn. We are serial winners. So we need to, I think we need to honestly use the games to, sorry, I'm just totally delighted, by the way. I'm on like cloud nine. <laughs> I don't know what I'm going to say tonight. Uh, I'll just get that out there. Um, but yeah, I think I'll, I'll try to give a reasonable answer. Um, I think they're really good opportunities. Like, when did we last get two games that we could just not relax, but like you're qualified? So essentially, we get our preparation started two games early, and Steve Clark gets like a whole extra camp to look at the squad and choose players. And yeah, there's some who are just in the periphery and. Uh, ben Doak's been mentioned again and again and again and again, so maybe November is the perfect time to get him in, you know. Um, oh, it's so exciting, man. It's just so exciting. I can't wait. We're talking about, like, oh, like the last two are dead rubbers and it kind of we can't really finish top now. Like, before going to my point, the, the reason we can't really finish top is because, well, realistically, Spain have their last two games are against Cyprus and Georgia. And let's be honest, they're they're going to, they're going to beat them. Um, and then that means if we then win our last two games, we finish equal in points with Spain. Our head-to-head is exactly the same. We won 2-0 at home, they won 2-0 at home. So then it comes down to goal difference and Spain are just having yeah. a laugh right now in front of goal. Yeah. So it means that we would essentially have to beat Georgia away and Norway at home by an absolute barrel load of goals, which, come on, it's not going to happen. So, yeah, it's not mathematically impossible, but it's realistically um it's unrealistic. So, although we're saying, oh, like it's a bit rubbish, we don't get to finish top, it doesn't really give us that something to celebrate on the last day. But do you know what? In saying that, yeah, that's a bit rubbish, and we won't be top seeds now going to the actual tournament itself, which obviously in turn would have meant we could have progressed further. Well, you think, logically speaking. But the Denmark game a couple of years ago at home was the last game of the tournament, and we had nothing to play for because we'd already reached the playoffs at that stage. And we played so well that night. The atmosphere was incredible. And that it was amazing, I. It, it yeah. didn't feel like a dead rubber that night. It felt like oh, no. that was a huge game for us. And it probably was, actually, when you look at it, like in terms of our confidence, our performances, the team, like how much we turned around against big sides as well. That is a huge kind of turning point for us. Yeah. It didn't feel like that game was pointless. So I'm hoping that when we go back to Hamden in November, it's just going to be one massive party. <laughs> and that yeah. is the time for the, the players to end their lap of honour after the game. We get the party tunes on at full time. And it doesn't actually matter because we've done it and we're all going to be there together to celebrate it. I just want to take you guys back to when when the group was first drawn. Um, just because I, I remember there being a bit of, trepidation I'd, I'd be interested to get both of your thoughts on, on how you felt this campaign might go but there was a lot of trepidation in that we were like great we've got a higher pot of seeding or shite we've drawn Norway and we've got <laughs> Haaland to deal with but um hasn't mattered in the end but do you feel differently looking back now do you think this might give us a, a, a platform to go into future qualifications regardless of who we get thinking not our aim definitely should be to qualify it's just how well yeah, 100%, man. I remember my brother sent me one just going, shite, and uh, that basically <laughs> encapsulated what the nation felt. But, like, Alba Matter was known for, like, being positive and growth mindset and everything, and I was like, nope, no, it's going to be okay, it's going to be fine. But, I mean, everybody shat it a wee bit, you know, I think. But, like, you're right, Finn, it's... It got, it's another um, testament to Steve Clark, just like whatever he's done, like mindset wise in the squad or something, it doesn't it doesn't seem to phase anybody. It's I don't know if it's Andy Robertson winning the European Cup, obviously that helps like players playing at the highest level, but just looking around and thinking, nah, we can we can do this. And totally with you, Laura, like I remember because me I mentioned my brother quite a lot, but We've been going to Scotland games as I remember your Twitter bio used to read like a tortured army or a tortured member of the Tartan army. And like that was that's me and my brother, right? So, Ali, if you're listening, hello. But we were looking at each other like during the Denmark game, just like totally bewildered. Like, 
grabbing each other's shoulders, going, "This is mental. We are Brazil. <laughs> Only we're we're not. We're Scotland. We're better than Brazil." And like, I don't know if you remember, but we could have scored three. We could have gone three now. And McCoy's commentary for that is just like what we were doing. Just oh, oh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, and man. that's what that's what it felt like against Spain as well, which is yeah, part of yeah. like you've got to kind of credit we're not there just because we wanna we 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 got lucky. We we you know we scored two late minute goals against Norway and we obviously beat Cyprus and yeah, the weather was in our favour against Georgia. It's not like that. When we played Spain, we were lit and it was like that what you're saying about in Denmark. We're starting to go, wait, who are we? <laughs> what watching here? We are really damn good, and it, it kind of just felt like how's that Scotland? Um, because we've absolutely got there and made it. Yeah, it kind of feels a wee bit like we've been given a helping hand to get over the line, which is just unfortunate the way the fixtures worked out. But my God, we are there absolutely on merit, no doubt about it. And just wait, to go back what you were saying, Finn. I don't know if you remember what you thought, Finn, when the draw was made, but I found my tweet. I found just for Ricky one recorded this. My tweet says, Scotland. Finally, we have a good chance of qualifying the traditional way. UEFA, hold my beer. It's <laughs> just <laughs> absolutely, like, who, I just thought, nah. Who's holding the beer now, Laura? Who's holding the <laughs> exactly. beer? Exactly. I hey, am UEFA, I am gosh. holding the beer. <laughs> <laughs> not not to bring it up purely for the purposes of gloating or anything, but I, I do <laughs> seem to remember being relatively positive about our chances when the draw was made. Because I, I think it is that thing. I've seen so many international teams which have got standout amazing players, world-class players even, but sometimes that's not enough to take them through. Um, sometimes it is. In recent examples, you know, Egypt qualifying for the 2018 World Cup when Mo Salah was probably the best player on the planet, certainly one of them. But with uh, with Haaland, but he's got a formidable scoring record for Norway. But um, I, I just feel like Norway's not the same team that we are. Like we're they're not more than the sum of their parts, and we are, and and that's wonderful. And like you say, we're we're there very much on merit. We've had a historic, genuinely historic campaign. We've won our first five opening games, never done that before. Qualified with two games to spare, never done that before. And I think one of the wonderful things we'll get into the nitty gritty. We keep saying this about the VAR decision and 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 the game against Spain, but overall, I think for us to be in a place where, as Scotland fans, we're coming away from playing Spain in Spain, gutted that we haven't yeah. gubbed them on their own patch. What does that tell you about where we are now with the national team? It's it's fantastic. And looking ahead to next summer, it's so exciting, isn't it? I mean, like, look, Laura, have you started planning, booking, doing all this kind of stuff already? Have, have you got an idea for a base that you want to go to? Andy, are you going? Are you going to be able yeah, to take yeah. the whole family out there? <laughs> Oh, you can go first, Laura. I well, I mean, uh, you know what I've been like in the last like the, every episode we've talked about this so far. It's been everyone's been saying when we qualify for Germany, I've been going if if <laughs> because I just didn't want to let myself. I kept seeing it as the last three games of the hardest of the group, and I could just see it going right down to the wire. So I, I didn't want to get carried away. Although in the back of my mind, don't get me wrong, I have been absolutely planning Germany to a T. Deep, deep in the back of my brain. I just haven't booked anything yet because I don't want to jinx it. But yeah, I mean, straight onto Sky Scanner, I am getting all that booked. Obviously, it'll all become a wee bit more obvious in December once the draw's been made. But just get out there, get a base for two weeks, a month. Well, we're going to win the thing, so let's just go for the whole damn thing, right? I've got I've got to have a conversation with my boss tomorrow morning and put some holiday requests in. Um, I can't wait. I think that as we had Derek Ray on, Two weeks ago, um, planning. And if you haven't listened to that episode, especially now that it's all set in stone, go back and listen to Derek Ray talking about what we should do in Germany and how we should be planning it. He's talking all about the the transport links and the the um, accommodation, the way that their football culture is over there, how they're going to host the tournament. Obviously, he's got first-hand experience of Germany and German football. It's, it's a great listen. So I will definitely be taking his advice. Um, on what to do and where to go but I think anywhere kind of around the kind of Frankfurt, Cologne, Dusseldorf sort of area seems to make the most sense if you want to book up before the fixtures are confirmed because not only are they all so close together um, so you've got a best bet of moving around but they're also well connected transport wise and if you want to go up to Hamburg or down to Munich or along to Berlin you can get overnight trains um, and plan it that way so 
yeah, I think that is definitely kind of the way to go. And then it's just excitement levels go through the roof in December when it all starts piecing the jigsaw together. 100%. Yeah, yeah. So we um, we are a family of five, right? So it's my, it's my wife and, and three girls and we all watch Scotland. Uh, I've been bribing, sorry, in, indoctrinating, sorry, <laughs> influencing <laughs> my kids with a love of Scotland <laughs> since they've been born. So, which I know attest to, but like... Uh, We've been the same, Laura, just because like, we can't afford to like buy tickets and then not go. Apparently, the cheapest way of doing it, if like me, you're trying to do it in a budget, because um, I think it was like 1500 for a family of five or something like that, the ferry, the Rotterdam ferry or the Amsterdam ferry gets you on mainland Europe, and that's 851 for a family of five with the car. So that's what we are doing. That came in tonight, hot off the press. What's the thing? See, as soon as you're on mainland Europe, you can get anywhere after that. Just get on. It doesn't matter if you're... <laughs> oh, Andy's done the big reveal. <laughs> I know. I when I was... Uh, I wasn't a cyclist. I was a wee bit skinnier, do you know what I mean? But it's... <laughs> It looks a bit like a cycle talk. It looks good on you, though. Just for those listening, obviously, that can't see this all, uh, on YouTube. For First of all, watch it on YouTube. You know? But uh, and, Andy's <laughs> had his, uh, his 150th Scotland shirt on the whole podcast so far, has just torn it off to reveal. Is that the 1990 Germany kit? It is. It's the 90s. Oh, beauty. I think it's the best football kit ever or something like that. It's like wow. an absolute peach. Classic. Yeah. Classic. I mean, it really is a suck your belly in. And... <laughs> I love it for those not watching on YouTube. We are, um, and yeah, as Finn said, go watch us on YouTube. Um, me and Finn both have uh, backgrounds here of Oktoberfest parties, um, of just lederhosen, beers everywhere. And then Andy, who's got a computer from about 1999, couldn't get his backdrop. <laughs> so instead, wore a signed Scotland top and a German t- uh, a German strip. So, I mean, fair play. You've you've kind of evened it out there a wee bit. I did. Try to raise the bar for a high-quality podcast, you know. So, <laughs> um, the draw itself is going to be made on the second of December. So we've got we've got a fair wee while to get our plans made and things booked. Have you guys got like a a, a preference as to who we get drawn against? Do you want you know the the hardest possible groups for the best matches, or would you prefer just diddy teams and get us into the knockout round as quick as oh, possible? Oh, diddy teams! I want to win the whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want Spain again. I don't want um, England again. Um, I mean, look at the teams that are qualified so far: France, Belgium, Portugal, and Turkey, and obviously Spain and us. Um, I mean, I don't want any of them. <laughs> so, nah, give us all the give us the winners from the uh, the playoff qualifiers next March and the teams that scrape by. Uh, I yeah, look, it's great just to be there. It's such a diplomatic answer, isn't it? To be like, I oh, will take anyone. But how much do you want to get out of the group stages this time? I mean, we we got there in Euro twenty twenty. We we. We did our thing, we took part, it was great for the fans, it was great for the fans who could go there, it obviously wasn't the best experience overall in terms of COVID times, but that was our learning curve, and when we had a very kind of young team that were just sort of kind of shaping at that point, we were very lucky that we have a very, very similar side all these years, all these years, a couple of years on, um, <laughs> but they are probably mentally and physically so much stronger now um, and you want them to have learnt from those three games and obviously we don't want another repeat from the, the Czech Republic kind of, well, say humiliation, it wasn't maybe not a bit strong but I don't, I don't want to be a gif after the first game we, we play in a tournament yeah. and I don't want it to, to be like Croatia where we just don't turn up and we've seen flashes of that since with the Ukraine playoff, with the England friendly where it's just we've got a little side to us there is just a little reminder of the bad times and you go, oh, that's the side that turned up again. We don't want that. We want that team that played against Spain and played against Denmark and and the, the last five minutes against Norway. And if that team turns up, my God, um, we're not working for a month. <laughs> well, that's the thing. I mean, there's there's so much to look forward to because this time around, maybe after the Euros, because two of the matches were at home and the other game was at Wembley, so it's a train ride away. It's still within the same landmass of the UK. 
Um, and it was still COVID. We were coming out of it and stuff. It it kind of, yeah, we qualified and what an honour that was for the first time in 23 years. But it kind of, it didn't really, it felt like a bit of a false start. This time around, we'll be taking, as Derek Gray mentioned, you know, 70, 80, 100,000 Scotland fans all over Germany. We're bringing the party. It's going to be great. We'll be filling the stadiums, filling the streets, draining the bars. It'll be awesome. Um just to bring this back to to the match uh, that we had against Spain during the week, is it does it feel any better now we're a couple of days on? Because I, I'll be honest, I, I felt quite raw. I mean, Laura, you were at the game, so goodness knows how you were feeling. It felt quite raw because with Euro twenty twenty or twenty twenty one, we were kind of denied that joy of being all together. Uh, and celebrating with the team, being in the national stadium, or, or at least a section of fans, if it were an away game that we'd qualified for Euro 2020, you know, out in Belgrade. Um, and this time around, I don't think we were expecting it, but the way that the game panned out against Spain, it was on. Like, we, I, 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 don't, I don't know. I don't know if we would have gone on to lose the game had McTominay's goal stood. And does it still feel that we've kind of been denied maybe that, that occasion, that joyous moment of fans and team being in the same place at the same time to celebrate it all live and as one. I'm kind of hoping, like Laura said, we'll get there. It'll be a big party in November. But I do want, I agree as well, I want the the right Scotland turning up to do that. And I'm sure that'll be Steve Clark's message to them as well. It'll be like, right, we've qualified, now the work starts. You know, like he's not one to kind of, he might let them have a beer tonight, maybe. On the eve of a game, probably not. They're all so professional <laughs> now. Like, I, I honestly don't know. Laurel Babel, she's seen behind the curtain at West Ham and all that. But, like, I was a wee bit surprised that we didn't see any shots of the team watching the game in the hotel. Aye. Because, like, I, I get it, we're two nights away from a, a game, a friendly, and we all know those players were sitting watching the game. I, I know we kind of got with a statement on the website with some Steve Clark quotes and Andy Robertson quotes. I, Look, I'm not asking for a live stream of the boys sitting in their boardroom with their projector, but something would have been nice. Uh, obviously, the kind of the, the the shots leaked after the Serbia game of the boys dancing to David Marshall, you know, Saturday night round the table and everything in their own kind of private party after the game. I'm not expecting something like that to come out. Then I'm not expecting them to be up celebrating all night long and and being on the beers all night, but. See if it just kind of been something from the full time whistle. I think would have been nice. I was a wee bit surprised by that. But I, I, I'm kind of hoping that it's because Steve Clark's got them so drilled that they're just like, no, we're a winning machine now. You know, we this is what we do. Oh, but then you still need to kind of like have a moment where you go, guys, we made it. Like, aye, aye, no, it would be nice. Because then if they, because then if they lose against Norway, then they're going to feel like it's not really our place to go crazy and celebrate here. So you kind of have to, they're not going to go out on Tuesday night against France. They're not going to go out and do something pre-match. If they lose, they're not going to go and do something. There's a very small pocket of away fans going to be there. They'll go over and they'll do the kind of claps and they'll, they'll, they'll see them, obviously. But there isn't that moment. And to kind of go back to what Femi's saying, there, there isn't really an opportunity for that moment of bringing the fans, the players and the moment all together as one. Which to me kind of is a wee bit sad um, that we're not going to have that. I mean, the amount of games that all of us have been to over the years and we've never really, I kind of, I don't know, I feel like the the Spain game and the obviously the Norway win at the end. To me, that's what I'll look back on as the moments we qualified. The celebrations at full time against Norway. I still have a scar on my leg um, from the, the chair that got thrown in the second goal, and, and I am I'm proud of that. I don't I don't I don't care about that scar. That I can stay there for all I care. Um, those are the moments that will live with me. Tonight, watching that game in my living room, um, kind of gave me COVID vibes again. Thursday was the sort of perfect way for that to all pan out. If we'd done it, we got over the line. The fans were obviously there. The players were there. It was all done in the pitch. It would have been another m- momentous victory if it had happened. So it does feel a bit like VAR kind of ruined that party. <laughs> well, let's let's talk about that a little bit because do we have to? It's uh, really, really well. Wrong. <laughs> I, it's kind of it, I, it does still feel raw, but I th- I think it's an important 
conversation and uh, what was really interesting was obviously I, you know we've all got pals that are I'd, having lived in London, I've got a lot of pals who are like obviously like England football fans or or fans from other countries as well. Um, and the amount of people that messaged me after the game, just being like, I, I can't believe what I watched during that. And it, it's kind of I, I think especially for my pals who are who are big football fans in in England, off the back of um the 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 big uh, debacle that happened recently in the Premier League game between. Tottenham and Liverpool, where you know where there was calls for the game to be replayed, and and you're seeing a, an exceptionally peculiar level of human error and almost like stubbornness in in changing it. I, I just it it it's kind of inflamed that debate with VAR, which has just been prevalent the entire time it's been around. But is it something that we genuinely need to have a look at here? Because I mean, even looking at that incident. It none of us could tell what it was for. It, it initially, I think it was given as a foul, and then it was changed to an offside, and then they've not, but they've not checked with the line for offside, and it was all just a little bit mysterious. And I, I, I think I don't know if you guys agree, but it felt watching the game at that point, being one nil up, scoring a cracking goal, having I thought defended fairly resolutely and brilliantly throughout the game. Um, as a whole, we, we Spain had a lot of position, but they hadn't done much with it, and we got to halftime pretty comfortably. Um, that going one nil ahead with half an hour left on the clock, I felt that Spain might still score, but obviously that wouldn't have been enough. They would have needed yeah, two. I don't know if we go on to lose mm-hmm. two goals being one nil up with half an hour to go, and and you can't not say that VAR's detrimentally impacted the occasion, the spectacle, the game, it's denied as a brilliant Scott McTominay goal and him maybe getting the qualifying golden boot. Um but but more than that, you know, it's it's taken a, an awful lot away, it feels from from the fan base and, and from Scotland. Just to point out, Spain have not lost a double header in qualifying um ever, apart from once in their history, which I think was nineteen nine Euro ninety two qualifying and that was to France. That is the only time Spain have ever wow. lost a double header to one team in qualifying. So we were on the verge of something historical as well. And again, you don't want to prod the fire too far. <laughs> but what came to mind straight away, I think I messaged you about it, Laura, I probably messaged you about it as well, Andy. It was like Hutton against Italy. Hutton against yeah. Italy. I was just like, it seemed so bizarre. There was nothing clear and obvious about it. It just kind of feels like the little countries don't get the breaks with that. Yeah. Yeah. But that would be the same domestically for, for years. People have been saying that, you know, that you don't get the breaks against the big teams. And that there needs to be an element of truth to it. Uh, and on the VAR thing, I, I think we forget, like we wanted this perfection with VAR, like this robotic perfection. And we forgot that it doesn't matter how perfect the lines are drawn or whatever. There's still going to be somebody making a decision at the end of it. And it's still going to be up for debate and I'm with you man I mean it just it, it exposed VAR for what it was basically as, as well as that I thought straight away of the Spurs-Liverpool game I mean I don't support either team so I didn't really care but I could have been being on the end of a decision like that felt like injustice like you're always going to get these injustices in sport right but it's like with far we were led to believe that they would be ironed out unless yeah. it was clear and obvious and all this kind of stuff. I mean, we've all we've heard this a million times. But that that moment for me was like what VAR robbed the fans of is like mm. far more than than what it's given, I think. Like what it got in the way of is far more than than what it's given. It might get the odd offside right or something like that, but see those moments of ecstasy, that's what like football is. And like Scott McTominay's strike, the fact that <laughs> every Spanish player was like, oh well, you know, like fair play, what what a goal. Even that the you know the keeper wasn't looking around going off and pushed yeah. by Jack. You know what there was nobody complaining. It was just a superb strike and then that moment's like robbed. So yeah, it was a it was a stinker. And that's what that's what was so hard to take about it. Cause yeah. like you're playing yeah. Spain in Spain and you're gutted, like you say, you're gutted that you've not beaten them. Or at least yeah. take- <laughs> I take it it was as confusing for you guys watching it on TV because I did see Rory tweeting afterwards basically saying that he's not given any information 
so he, how is he meant to commentate on it when he's not provided with any information? So he's seeing it in real time like everyone else is seeing. So I'm, I'm assuming that you guys watching it at home, you were getting as little information as we were in the ground. But Everyone's just totally perplexed, yeah? Like, yeah. Idea. I mean, obviously it was like a carnage when the goal went in. It goes on for so long. That's, that's the thing, right? So it felt like the celebrations went on for so long before you then realise, hold on, something's not right here. It's not immediate. And then we were actually quite lucky. that This very rarely happens, but the um, the big screens were showing the replays. So everyone turns around to the big screen that's behind the, the away end, and we're looking at it, we're going, and everyone together kind of in unison is like, eh? Like, what are we looking at here? What are we actually looking for? Then there's the obvious confusion because the ref does the wrong hand signals. So yeah. doesn't give the correct free kick. Yeah. It implies it's a foul on the big screen. It says it's a foul, and that is the only level of information that anyone gets is what is written on the screen. And when they're given the wrong information, that makes me think: Well, are they wrong, or are they guessing, or is it something even more sinister and dark here that they're saying it's one thing, and then they later on decide it's something else because they've messed up and they're trying to cover their tracks? Now we don't have the audio, and I know the SFA wrote to UEFA. Obviously, we all know he was offside. That's not up for debate. That's not that nobody is disputing that because the lines show that. So they're they're then saying that he's impeding on the opposition, and that's when I think it comes down to your subjective viewpoint because there's no way you can factually say it. he well he didn't he didn't literally put his arms around them or block them in any way whatsoever. So then it becomes down to your own subjective opinion, and this is why it is so frustrating for me because it is just one man making an opinion on what he thinks. Um, and it, it becomes more of a science at this point when if you're taking that long to decide and analyse it and it comes down to that small a margin, for me, it's not clear and obvious. And that is what VAR was introduced to do. It was to overturn clear and obvious errors. That is not a clear and obvious error. So I I just, I think the whole thing has just been an absolute mess and UEFA so far have not covered themselves in any glory whatsoever because they've not explained themselves or done anything to try and say why they've done it this way or give us any sort of explanation. So yeah, it does hurt. And okay, yeah, you can argue that it was factually correct if you want, but it doesn't make it any easier because as we're kind of seeing that emotional side of things as well, which is what I've always said since day one of VAR, it removes that emotional aspect for a fan and and that's kind of what we're tapping into tonight. There was no euphoric release of celebration. Yeah. And that's kind of why it feels a wee bit odd tonight to celebrate this, because we've not had that moment. That's what football fans live for. That's the drug that is football. And I don't see... Like, no football fan ever wants to remove that, but it feels right now like the scientists of football are trying their hardest to remove that, and that's what kind of makes it a bit sad and frustrating. We're not that far away from like having lines from... Okay, so did Jack Henry get in the way of the goalkeeper's eyes and then like give the light coming <laughs> in? Like Terminator 2 and Arnie's driving and go, I see everything. You know, it's like <laughs> we're very close to getting there. Anyway, all of that said, the the main thing is that we we we're there. We've qualified. It didn't matter in the end. We qualified one way or another. Just talking about players, Scotland players or players involved with the national team, uh, but also trying to bring this back to domestic matters now that we're heading back into the domestic calendar there was some pretty good news this week the news that Craig Gordon is back playing he played 45 minutes of a, a closed door bounce game inside an empty town castle didn't concede um, it's been 292 long days since he was injured uh, against Dundee United on, on Christmas Eve it was a double leg break he's 40 years old do you think there's still uh, a place for him in the national team oh, knowing, knowing what your dog, answer is yeah. <laughs> <laughs> get him straight back in there with one leg if you had to <laughs> I, I love P. Gordon and um, for obvious reasons I want him back in team like, I, I would take obviously I'm not going to everyone knows I want Liam Kelly to get his chance so this is the, definitely not at the, the the cost of him going out the squad obviously I still want him to stay in the squad at this point um, and play obviously if he gets a chance but I just don't feel like Craig Gordon's done yet. Um, he is the, the he is Terminator. <laughs> he is absolutely untouchable. He comes He's back. Everything. 
yeah, he comes back time and time again. He is absolutely a man made of steel. And if he's coming back at 40 from a horror break like that, um, fair play to the boy. And I just, I don't want Clark to do what he did with the Euros. And I feel like he kind of gave David Marshall his place at the Euros out of sentiment. Um, he's yeah. probably the, he would argue till his dying day he didn't do that okay because he's not like that but I feel like deep down it might have been the reason why he did that and we all know that wasn't the right thing like I love David Marshall he deserves a statue outside Hamden at least his hand does for what he did against <laughs> Serbia but he shouldn't have played at the Euros and we've all seen since then he he is off a wee bit now and he has kind of slowed down and he did retire um, at probably a good time for him to be remembered as a legend I don't want Clark to then just take gun into the tournament and be like, oh, well, you got us there. So now you're going to keep your place because for all that everyone knows, I'm not an Angus Gunn fan because of his 28 caps for England. I think Craig Gordon is a far, far, far better player and he deserves his chance at a tournament. <laughs> he needs his tournament. Come on, guys. Um, and I just think we are very, very safe in the hands of Craig Gordon. I think Gordon's glow up if we can call it that. Because <laughs> I remember him coming in as like an 18 year old and just looking a bit like a ghost. Like that's what <laughs> In his shirts that were about four sizes too big for him. <laughs> oh bless him. You'll grow into it, son. You'll grow into it. <laughs> but that he's he's matured into like the most handsome man in the world, right? As as well as being a really good goalkeeper. So um, I'm I'm delighted to see him back, but you know I'll just I'll give another angle there. Um, I think it's brilliant to have competition in the Scotland squad now. If anything, it's going to make Angus Gunn better. If he does go for Angus Gunn, it's going to certainly keep him in his toes and push him. So Laura, I'm with you. I think he's absolutely incredible. I really hope he can come back to those levels because that's only good for us. And if he pushes Angus Gunn, all the better. can't be having that mate you better get your finger out all right and make sure that you get the results now well there's not been a huge amount of news on the domestic front in the last 10 days or so there has of course been one big story that has been ongoing throughout the international break that being the decision around who would become the next permanent manager of rangers after the ibrox club gave michael beale his marching orders after a fairly tumultuous start to the season that particular mini saga came to a close on Sunday night as it was announced that former Genk, Bruges and Monaco manager Philippe Clement was appointed the new Rangers manager. He might not be a name hugely familiar to those of us in Scottish football circles so to get the lowdown on the new gaffer I'm delighted to say we have joining us on the show from the Belgian football podcast Scott Coyne. Scott thanks very much for joining us. Hi Finlay how are you? It's great to be here thanks for the invite. To the new Rangers manager, Scott, I I think it's fair to say he's he's not a hugely well-kent face to Scottish football fans. Could you just give us a little bit of background as to who Philippe Clément firstly was as, as a player and then um, his kind of coaching career so far that's brought him to Ibrox? Well, I'm glad you asked me to tell you a bit more about him as a player because that's the one area of his kind of CV that hasn't really been talked about at all. And it's something that I've kind of brought up with everybody I've been speaking to um, over the last week because I do think his playing career is significant here. Mm. Obviously, he's come to the Rangers board's attention primarily because of those three consecutive titles that he won in Belgium back to back. One with the first one with Genk and then winning the next two consecutively with Club Bruges. And they're the, probably the things that, that, that you know, got the attention of the board at Ibrox. Um, but if you look back at his playing career, there's there, there are significant uh, elements there that I think are equally important. So we're talking about somebody here who, as a player and as a coach, is fundamentally, he's a, he's a serial winner. He's a consistent winner, and I think that's what's made him the standout candidate ahead of everybody else that's been spoken to throughout Rangers' recruitment process. He's the only one who I think you could argue has been a consistent winner throughout his entire career, actually. Others on on, on that list that were interviewed, I think, have won honours at various points at different stages of their career, but haven't done it in a consistent way throughout their career in the way that mm. Philippe has. 
Um, so in terms of his playing career, obviously he's got two league titles that he won when he was at Club Bruges. He has three Belgian Cups. Uh, three of those were with Bruges, one with Genk, and he has four Belgian Super Cups, which is the Belgian equivalent of the, I suppose, the old charity Shield. So he has a a very notable, I think, playing career, respectable international career as well, 38 caps for his country. He played for most of his career as a, as a central defender and a little bit laterally as a defensive midfielder, a very physical player, spent his entire playing career in Belgium, apart from a, a 12-month spell in, in England with Coventry, where he was signed at that time by a certain Gordon Strachan, believe it or not. So there is already a slight Scottish connection here. But yeah, he's a serial winner as a player, and um and and as a manager those three back-to-back titles and also one belgian uh super cup as well so he's he's um he's done notable things at every stage of his career and even before he retired as a player i think it was obvious he was going to go into coaching yeah. and he stayed at club bruges for for a rather long time working his way up doing his badges starts out as a scout at club bruges um, works alongside somebody called Stephen van der Aden, who will be his assistant at Ibrox. Yeah. Um, they were scouts together at Bruges, and then later on they both became part of the senior coaching staff before he went out um, and became a coach in his own right at a club called Beveren, um, mm. which are a slightly smaller club in Belgium. They were struggling at the time. He went in there, turned them around so quickly that he was gone within six months, Genk picked up the phone, <laughs> Um, he went there within 18 months. They've won the league, and Club Bruges, who obviously knew of him because uh, he played there for a number of years and has spent a number of years working his way through different elements of the coaching department and and, and the scouting network at Bruges, uh, were so yeah. impressed because it was actually Club Bruges that he pipped to the title the, the year he won it with Genk. Um, they wanted him back pretty sharpish, and obviously at that time, Club Bruges were and at the moment still are arguably the the, the biggest side in Belgium. Can you give us a bit of a sense of what his playing style is? Is is he somebody that's got, you know, a fairly rigid system or, or formation preference or methodology that he sticks to? Or is he somebody that can be flexible tactically? Well, I think he is quite pragmatic. I mean, he does have does have a preferred way of playing, um, but how he kind of arrives at that destination has varied from club to club. So he does like playing what you, I would kind of describe as, a, as ultimately a possession-based game, which is quite attacking. He does look to exploit the space in behind. So, you know, he'll look for his wing backs um, to find that space and uh, his strikers to kind of find those pockets. And what he's really trying to do regardless of how he's playing tactically, is draw the opposition out to expose that space. What he's going to find in Scotland, of course, and I'm sure he's already been told this, is that a lot of sides will play against Rangers with quite a low block. So there's a number of different ways to exploit you know, that that perceived negativity. And I, I don't think that is a negative thing. That's just the way sides choose to set up sometimes yeah. against sides who have more firepower. And I think they're entitled to do that. Obviously, the onus is on the side where, where you know, the greater attacking power to, to, to break them down. So yeah. he, he'll have to become a little bit more creative, I think, and in, in, in how he approaches football domestically, perhaps, which is probably one of the reasons why he's already decided that he is going to have either a current member of Rangers staff or somebody who has a lot of knowledge and experience of the club on his yeah. coaching staff just to bring in kind of up to speed with kind of uh, the football culture in Scotland and, and what to expect from certain environments and, yeah. and sizes. But he is he is pragmatic and he is flexible and he will work with what's there. So he'll have analysed that squad and decided already, probably before the offer was made, whether he felt he could go in there and work with what is already there. I've always been of the opinion that that this current Rangers squad has taken a bit of a bashing for quite a while now. I feel it's not as bad or nearly as bad as many people would 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 have you believe, mm. um, and that there are players in that squad that would fit the way he would ideally like to play, and that I think probably would excite him, and that he will already know. There's a lot of um, players with experience in Belgium. Funnily enough, Rabi Matondo yeah. was at Circle Bruges, will have played against Philippe. There's Nicolas Raskan, who was at Standard Liège, who's a really fine young Belgian player yeah. who I don't think Rangers have been getting the best out of. They might yet now. Cyril Dessers as well, who wasn't at Genk at the same time as Philippe, but will have played against uh, Philippe's club Bruges side while he was yeah. while he was in Belgium at Genk. 
Um, and of course, Zeb Jacobs, who is the head of Rangers Academy, is is Belgian himself and used to run Antwerp's Academy. So yeah. um, there's there's a lot of kind of links here. But there are players in that squad that will fit the way he would ideally like to play longer term. And I don't think there is this urgency to necessarily splash any cash. He will obviously, over the next couple of weeks, probably decide quite quickly who he fancies and who he doesn't, like all coaches do. But I think he'll want to take it one step at a time and kind of be kind of quite open to change I think he was indicating that today as well that he doesn't want to go in there and necessarily make sweeping changes the initial couple of weeks are really about bringing people back together I think again and and just you know um looking at a sense of unity and and talking about what's expected of them now he's very much going into having to need to hit the ground running um you know he's uh joining a side that's already seven points adrift at the top of the table. There is the small matter of the League Cup semi-final against Hearts coming up soon, which, you know, there's a possibility of winning silverware quite early on. As you're alluding to there, the squad he's inheriting seems, I, I, I would say, fairly bereft of confidence. And despite quite a bit of money being spent on it, I, I agree with you. I think there's probably a, well, there's far more that can come from them. Um, uh, and I'm just wondering, like, do you see Clement as a character that is capable of utilising the squad that he's coming into to get them performing far better than they've done so far this season? Is that something that he's maybe got a track record of at his previous clubs in Belgium? Every club he's been at, he has had a very good record of turning things around kind of quickly, which obviously is an added plus here because, you know, he's coming to a club that... that aren't going to give him that time. Of course. But he's used to being at clubs where you don't get a lot of time. And one of the interesting things about Belgian football culture is that they tend to make managerial changes there very quickly. Okay. Um, So if things aren't going right, they won't really give you time there. And that's not to do necessarily with some of the size of the clubs uh, like it is in Scotland. It's more to do generally with the football culture there. So if you go on a run, for example, in Belgium, of five or six games winless, then you're going to be in trouble no matter what club you're coaching. Um, So he's used to working in an environment where the expectations are for instant results and to to challenge for everything. You know, it's it's similar at Genk and Club Bruges to Rangers. Uh, There is an argument that obviously Rangers are arguably bigger than those two clubs. Um, In lots of ways they are. But I think in terms of the, the, the overall expectations, they're not different if you're in Philippe's position, um, he knows that he won't be given a great deal of wiggle room. Um, The one thing about him that is interested is he's very kind of calm and collected. He has a very cool head, actually. So he will not be looking at the fact that Celtic are seven points ahead of them at the moment. I don't think that will make him nervous or, or, or bother him at all, particularly when he knows that there is other potential silverware on the horizon for him kind of quite yeah. early, which is a huge plus for him if you think about it, because that that allows you a little bit more time yeah. um, and, and just allows you to get to know that environment um, a little bit more. So I don't think there's anything about coming into a club this size that will that will phase him at all. Um, and that's something that obviously will have been discussed and looked at very thoroughly while, while they were interviewing him. His man management skills are very good as well. You know, he's very good at keeping things clear and simple for players. You know, modern football has a lot of data and stats and video analysis thrown at people all over the place, including at people it shouldn't be thrown at. So <laughs> he's very good at, at just keeping um, the, the, the need to know details to give to people. So that that's that's a real um, plus to his coaching. You know, he absorbs all of that from the staff around him, and is then able to distill that to individual players to to what they need. Anything that they do not need, you know, he'll keep to himself or just not give it to them. You know, as well as making it very clear what's expected of them. So that allows them to concentrate on their own roles and and bring a degree of consistency to their performance on the pitch, but also he makes it very clear what's expected of them off the pitch as well. Mm. Um, because at clubs at the size of Rangers and Genk and Club Bruges, there's an expectation for you can always to be switched on. You're always representing that club. Um, and that's a, that, that's something that's quite difficult for players to kind of get used to sometimes. So um, I, I, I think the, the culture 
um, that that he wants to bring um, kind of back together there inside the club uh, goes beyond simply what happens on the pitch. You know, it's about bringing the fans back together, the players back yeah. together, um, and and you know. Kind of holistic approach, actually, in a way. That's strangely how I would describe it. You know what I mean? So the club can move forward um, together ra- rather than th- there being, you know, this this sense of frustration on the fans' part with, with a squad that they feel isn't good enough. When, in fact, I think what's happened is a lot of those players, for me, have been played out of their natural positions. They've not particularly been man-managed that well. So obviously there's a confidence issue as well. So he's very sensitive to these things. I, I, I get It's interesting you say all that stuff about not you know not just the, the footballing side but the kind of the non-footballing side um around Clement as well because I, I guess that's one of the biggest criticisms that was kind of leveled at Michael Beale was that that he you know he's a hugely revered coach in the game but in terms of stature he maybe didn't have he certainly didn't have the experience but he maybe also just didn't have you know the the broad shoulders and the stature that you need to be a manager as opposed to a coach, certainly at a club like Rangers. Um, is Clement potentially somebody who's maybe more of that authoritarian figure that Rangers have lacked in recent appointments? And and do you think, given his experience of the high-pressure nature of the jobs that he's had before, that will be something that stands him in good stead for, for want of a better expression, the, the Glasgow Goldfish Bowl, you know, that high-pressure cooker situation? Yeah, I think so. I mean, he's not the sort of coach who wears his heart in his sleeve. You won't see him um, doing anything mad on the touchline. Um, <laughs> he tends to keep his emotions under wrap for the most part. You know, you'll see him issuing a lot of instructions. You know, he's not shy of tactically being seen. But, you know, from an emotional perspective, he, he's quite cool and calm-headed, uh, regardless of what's going on. And I think that's very important when you come into the environment of obviously Celtic Rangers fixtures where, you know, there's a lot of emotions flying around, not all of them good sometimes. (laughs) Um, So being able to transmit that calmness is actually really important Mm. and and helpful in situations like that. These Rangers players over over this coming week can expect to probably be drilled a lot in the timing of the runs and the right timing of uh, line-breaking passes. Uh, And another thing he likes to do, another trick of Philippe's is uh, he likes players to have a, an A, B and C option as well. So they will look at scenarios and look at alternatives to maybe the ideal pass as well. So um, mm. there's a there's a kind of flexibility and a, and a desire to kind of push people to develop all of the time. So there's not necessarily always one right answer to something that, that he kind of instills in players. He's quite a big guy, Philippe. He is literally somebody you will end up looking up to. <laughs> um, and... If you've ever seen any video footage of him uh, doing team talks in the dressing room, that's sometimes when a little bit of passion will come out and he will mm. say things that he would never on a touchline or, or or anywhere else. He's a little bit more emotive, I think, in private than he is publicly. So it does come out. It just it comes out in, in other environments with him. And I think he chooses to do that in the dressing room rather than on the touchline. Um, so you, you almost get the best of both worlds with him. dogs bark and the caravan passes the caravan keeps moving the caravan keeps going that's it for another week on the scottish football show thank you to laura and andy for joining me thank you also to scott coin of the belgian football podcast for giving us a lowdown on philippe clement as ever don't forget to check out the full and unabridged chat for that one on our youtube channel all that remains for me to do in the wise words of andrew slavin is say go and listen to something else now Bye.